and welcome to Office Hours, the Ithacan podcast where we speak to professors about what they're working on outside the classroom. I'm your host, Salisa Kalakal, and I'm joined today by Dr. Paula Iwanide, um, and she's going to introduce herself. Hi, thanks for having me. Hi. Um, so I am uh, an associate professor in the Center for the Study of Culture, Race, and Ethnicity here at Ithaca College. Um, we lovingly call ourselves the CSERE or the Center. Um, And I teach in comparative race and ethnicity studies. Um, And some of my kind of areas of research and expertise are um, around uh, a field that is called critical whiteness studies, um, as well as um, I I also do have a focus on kind of race and emotions and um, the prison industrial complex. Great. So today we're going to be talking about a very hot topic, but also a controversial one. We're going to be talking about white supremacy. And I guess just to start off, uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center um, is saying that there's been a rise in white supremacist groups and hate groups in general over the past decade. And in August, we saw kind of one of the largest gatherings of white supremacist um, groups in a very long time in Charlottesville, Virginia. Mm -hmm. And it kind of ended in tragedy because a white supremacist drove his car into a crowd and ended up killing a counter-protester, Heather Heyer. So I wanted to ask you, um, why do you think we're seeing this kind of resurgence or rise in white supremacist hate groups? Yeah, and I think the important thing is to emphasize that these groups have always been there. They've always been sometimes on the fringes and sometimes in the center of U.S. politics, right, Um, since the nation's sort of inception. But what we are seeing, and I think what shifted in the national context, was a kind of public endorsement of their ideologies and um, certainly some of their viewpoints, a kind of white resentment or white rage, or one might even call it a sense of white victimhood around specific types of losses, whether that was a kind of um, perception at a loss of white dominance uh, in the cultural arena, or a loss uh, in certain factions of um, white Americans of economic wealth that previously those factions had enjoyed. Um, we heard a lot from kind of the white working class, right, kind of losing the their prospects for the American dream. And certainly we cannot underestimate uh, the significance of the Trump, you know, prior to the presidency and uh, prior to the election of Donald Trump um, in the runoff, right, in the election season, which lasts almost a year, we saw an incredible buildup of this based on Donald Trump's uh, extremely uh, xenophobic, anti-immigrant, and certainly kind of dog whistle politics, right, where he uses race baiting in order to create a solidarity amongst uh, white Americans. I think there was a wrongful, among some people, a wrongful perception that that we were past that as a nation, that that wouldn't work, that that essentially uh, white bigotry was a kind of thing that uh, happened in the past and was more on the fringe of uh, even sort of mainstream white American politics. And I think people were, um, some people on the left and certainly even amongst kind of the liberal Democrats, right, there was a kind of sense of surprise that Donald Trump's kind of racial politics and race baiting um, would garner so much support. And here we are now where it's 2017 and we're having neo-Nazi and white supremacist rallies in the middle of 
um, you know, a university campus, um, which is certainly, you know, not exactly like our own, but not unlike our own either. Um, so it's hugely significant um, in that um, uh, this kind of resurgence of public legitimacy has sort of brought um, and certainly um, kind of created a kind of solidarity for those people who uh, have these um, uh, extremist uh, bigotry kind of views, um, but certainly a much more, a much broader faction of white Americans who may not call themselves neo-Nazi or call themselves white supremacists per se, or white nationalists per se, but who uh, endorse and support many of their viewpoints. Mm, so I wanted to kind of touch on that, the people who, you know, they don't subscribe to like the neo-Nazi groups or mm -hmm. they're not part of those hate groups, but deep down they kind of endorse those ideas whether they know it or not and I feel like we're kind of seeing them want to separate themselves from those white supremacist ideals do you think that's um, productive or do you think they should kind of engage with it and kind of face it head-on instead of trying to say that's not me. I'm not like that. Yeah, it's a tricky question because the reason white bigotry in this really extremist form, whether neo-Nazi or white supremacist or white nationalist identified, the legitimacy of those groups has been put into deep question, right, is because the civil rights movement dating back to the 50s and 60s and into the 70s, right? The black freedom movements and the solidarity third world liberation movements essentially delegitimized white supremacy in that form and won the moral battle, if you will, where it has never been okay since that time for white Americans to kind of publicly avow that viewpoint with ease and not get some kind of sort of criticism, right? So it's, we have to remember that part of the reason we consider white nationalism and, what, and neo fascism illegitimate viewpoints today um, is because of the moral and um, mass freedom movements of that, that were staged in the 60s and 70s. Having said that, what hasn't gone away is a kind of um, complicity among a much larger number of white Americans, a complicity with the idea that they are the victims and that people of color, as people of color, make gains, whether economic gains, whether social and educational gains, that they are then going to experience losses. And they, you know, historically white Americans have fought the imagined or projected potential of losses vehemently and violently, right? So um, I guess to answer your question, it's better for people to understand that there's kind of a continuum between, uh, certainly it's better for white Americans to examine themselves and their past practices, our past, our, I should say our past practices, right? Um, to examine the, the, the ways in which institutional policies or what we call systemic racism, right, these very built-in ways of discriminating or excluding or not, not allowing for social equity, it's much better for, for us to admit that continuum that we're actually not that far from sort of these overt forms of bigotry if we look at the systematic ways in which people of color continue to be discriminated against. But it's unlikely to happen <laughs> because very few people want to be 
the bad guy, right? They, they very few people want to admit like, yeah, I'm aligned with, <laughs> you know, one of the most despicable groups in U.S. history, right? So it's very, on an ego-based level, it's very hard for wh- white Americans and white folks in general to kind of self-examine and, ex- and, and admit, hey, I benefit from somebody else's suffering. So that lack of desire to identify with being the bad guy prevents people from kind of admitting, right, that there is kind of a, a shared logic there. I feel like part of that same coin is um, white guilt. And something mm-hmm. that got brought up in my politics class the other day, someone called someone out for kind of displaying sort of white guilt. So mm-hmm. I guess, do you think white guilt is productive? And how do we engage, if, I guess, if me as a person of color, if I think that a white person is kind of displaying like feelings of white guilt? Mm-hmm. I certainly think that um, white guilt has a place in the journey of self-examination and coming to terms with one's advantages and privileges on the basis of race, right? It's very difficult on an emotional level to be white, to look at America's history of racism and not experience some form of personal guilt because your ancestors essentially handed you down these advantages, whether you asked for them or not, through a lot of bloodshed and violence. So I know I personally went through a lot of white guilt um, when I was coming to terms with my own complicity and involvement with systemic racism. Um, having said that, it's really important that guilt isn't doesn't become an end in itself. In other words, that guilt should be sort of a vehicle to action towards justice. It should move people to understand that on a moral and personal and social and spiritual level, we cannot allow this system to go on. And therefore, the guilt should move us to motivate us essentially to correct past wrongs or to make up for all the vast inequalities that got produced by our ancestors. But if guilt becomes sort of a, an end in itself or just a feeling that sort of by displaying it, I sort of feel like my work is done, then it's highly problematic because it, it moves in this t- into this terrain where my best friend um, and colleague Felice Blake and I call feeling good for feeling bad. So that basically the emotional work of feeling bad sort of is considered like, well, now that I feel bad, I've done my part, right? Which is a terrible, terrible place to kind of uh, sort of think that your work is done. One of, I guess, the bigger questions I have, and I know a lot of people have, is how do we even begin to kind of engage with these white supremacist groups? How do we get them to think not in a way that's individualistic but is more structural because mm-hmm. I've sometimes I feel like it's like talking to a wall and they can't necessarily see the structures that they have maybe helped build so mm-hmm. what do you think is a way to even start having those kinds of productive conversations? Great question. I think that I don't plan to engage white supremacist groups, even as a as a as a white person who is in the work of trying to do work in racial justice. Right. And the reason for that is because um, my own research on ideology and emotions and belief structures has shown me that if people are not receptive to hearing what the facts say about racial inequality, they're not going to hear it. In other words, their own belief structure is such that it is absolutely closed 
to learning from other people. That doesn't mean that we don't engage them in another way or at least engage the, the havoc and the violence that that group is sort of creating in, in the national context today. And the way I sort of direct my energy is to work with people who are receptive, white people who are receptive, white people who are willing to do something. And certainly in cross-racial and you know multiracial coalitions so the idea for me is to create a counterculture and a counterfeeling that actually aligns with racial justice and with other forms of justice as well so that that when when that social movement is big enough it will delegitimize this other faction that wants to kind of create a resurgence of white domination so to me these we are at a deep national crossroad where you have to choose a side <laughs> you know it's very hard right now to sort of say i remain disinterested to remain disinterested is to be complicit in my view but to work with people who are expressing some kind of genuine willfulness to learn to self-examine themselves to examine how our white people advantages are hurting other people how our current structures are actually failing all of us if you really look at it deeply right they're certainly having a terrible terribly disproportionate effect on people of color but in the long run they're also not serving white people right i mean if you look at what the oil corporations are doing you know to people's in terms of environmental impact and climate impact it's like you could reap the immediate profits of investing in fossil fuels and oils right now but in two generations we're all going to be dead <laughs> you know what i mean so including those who are most advantaged and so there's this kind of mythology in white idea uh, ideology that we will always have these advantages but actually we're creating so much destruction as a result of inequality and the kind of havoc that these kinds of capitalist profits are are leading us towards that we're actually sinking the whole boat you know so for me there's also a, a, a genuine you know self-interest in liberate in your in our own liberation white people's liberation from essentially our ancestral past in and actually creating greater equity and interdependence and ecological harmony um, that takes longer to see on the initial level it's just about understanding that there isn't an equal playing field and that you know white folks have a moral and spiritual and political responsibility to you know, create a different, um, a different structure. Do you think that even if Donald Trump is, you know, impeached, white supremacy is still not, you know, going to go away? Mm -hmm. It's still going to remain? Because I know some people say, well, if we just impeach him, you know, everything will be okay. But, you know, it's not because white supremacy is kind of a living force. It helped, you know, build the systems we're in. So I guess, could you talk a little bit about that? How about how you know, removing the president isn't going to fix things like that. Yeah, I really agree with that. I mean, the president is simply a representation of a people's will in some way, right? And so we have to deal with the people's will and with this national will, right, and in what direction we're deciding to go. And I think that while Donald Trump has been absolutely detrimental, policy-based detrimental as well as, you know, rhetorically based kind of violence, right? That in some ways he's sort of created the contradictions where he's shown everybody with such clarity and such unabashed levels of masking, you know, like he's not a person who actually conceals what he feels and what he tells you exactly what he, who he is and what he's going to do. And as a result of that, uh, as a result of his sort of wide hatred for all of these marginalized groups, whether it's 
black people, immigrants of color, Latinos, you know, Muslims <laughs> or transgender people. Part of what he's saying is anything that isn't this traditional white male toxic masculinity kind of patriarchal, you know, heterosexual thing, which is actually the majority, not the majority of people, <laughs> you know, and in some ways that's producing enormous awareness of a kind of moment of opportunity for solidarity across all of these different marginalized groups, right? Now, that's hard work to do on the ground, but it's certainly waking people up to the reality that in some ways colorblind racism during the Obama era was so much harder to see, right? Systemic racism was so much harder to see when you had a black president, when you had a much softer tone and so on and so forth. All of that stuff was also there under President Obama. It's just that this, you know, this group of white nationalists hadn't kind of come to the fore in quite the same way. To answer your question, I think we have to use this as a moment of opportunity to build solidarity movements, both across race and certainly for that small faction of white Americans who are willing to actually stake themselves in some way in a practical, consistent manner against racism, against systemic racism. You know, the proof will be in, will be in the pudding. I mean, it, it's basically like, will you actually do what you claim to do? And historically, unfortunately, white folks have, don't have a great record on that. But we certainly have some some examples, right, of, of people who have really stuck by their word and done what they said they would do. So my greatest focus is, again, to kind of focus on building those movements, whether at the local level or at the national level. Great. Well, that's all the questions I have for today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.